And incidentally, I have had the opportunity to climb the 500 feet to the top of a nacelle and walk around on the platform on that nacelle and make some repairs to the engine in that nacelle. And that was all uh, due to the availability of virtual reality equipment. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet at WFPR.FM and in the local Franklin Mass area FM dial at 102.9. Here today for another Making Sense of Climate episode number 19. How did we get to 19? Ted McIntyre, my guide, how did how did we do this? <laughs> I, I will tell you, I was, I, for one of the few first times since the COVID hit, we went over to some friend's house for dinner. And uh, my friend looked at me and said, are you going to keep making those Climate Minute podcasts with Steve Sherlock? And I was just, I was dumbstruck. <laughs> the people actually listening. I can't, it is 19 episodes. That's a lot. So yeah, I'm very happy. You were a celebrity, did you? <laughs> I didn't. And we do have our celebrity here. His voice, I'm sure some folks may recognize, but with the introduction, our newly reelected rep, Jeff Roy. Welcome. Hey, great to be here. Uh, I'm in a good mood. It's a great day and uh, happy to be uh, reelected and so thrilled to be going back uh, for another term. And uh, hopefully I'll be sticking with the uh, the telecommunications, utilities and energy, or, or as we affectionately call it, TUE, mm -hmm. uh, because there's a great deal of uh, climate work to be done, as the two of you well know. And uh, I'm anxious to uh, get moving on it. I've actually already started drafting uh, legislation for the next session uh, because I think uh, the pattern has been and will continue to have a climate bill in every session of uh, the House of Representatives and Senate uh, until uh, we um, reach our climate goals. Mm. Whatever we can do to help us uh, get along that path, that's what we're going to do. Well, that begs the question, Jeff. What what's in that? Uh, what's on that envelope that you scribbled with a uh, light pencil as to what you're thinking about? <laughs> well, a uh, couple of the things that uh, jump to mind: uh, green banking is uh, something. Uh, how are we going to leverage uh, private capital and and government service uh, to fund all of the green? Uh, retrofits and other projects that uh, we know are necessary. Um, you know that we need a, we need a source of funding for that. And uh, several states have done a green bank, and uh, we're looking closely at that uh, in hopefully trying to uh, utilize the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center uh, as the uh, prime uh, quasi governmental agency uh, to administer the uh, funding. Uh, under the green bank so so jeff just to, so that i can understand my it's my belief that the a green bank is basically an organization that has money to lend out for projects that are green that are good but don't necessarily attract private investment and so that a green bank can take a longer view and commit to making payments over a long long period but not necessarily trying to go through the Lehman Brothers hamburger, you know, to, to get money in Wall Street. Is that a fair statement? Uh, that's that's fair, but we want to actually work in conjunction with these uh, private uh, companies to see if we can uh, leverage their private capital uh, with uh, maybe some uh, government guarantees or uh, participation mm -hmm. uh, in the program. Um, you know, Believe it or not, things are finally becoming profitable in the green space. And I think uh, companies are beginning to recognize that uh, there's money to be made in going green. And there's money to be made in saving energy. Uh, so uh, we ought to be looking in this direction. And any assistance we can give as a government, I think, is a good thing uh, because there's a lot of uh, retrofitting that uh, has to be done, particularly in our buildings uh, across the Commonwealth. It's, it's interesting. So what you're saying is the Green Bank would sort of be 
like a, it would be financially involved, but also kind of coordinating other monies, multiplying its own money by bringing in private sector money, but with the guidance of the wisdom of the uh, 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 of a green intent, right? That's you a great it. idea, man. I like that. You got it. And, you know, also leveraging uh, the money that's going to be available under the Inflation Reduction Act that the federal government passed a few weeks after we did our state bill. So uh, the timing is great. And, um, you know, we want to we want to leverage all of that uh, capital that's out there and put it to work uh, to start greening our environment. I, I shouldn't say start, continue, started. continue greening our environment. Yeah. There's no so, time like the present, clearly. That's exactly. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think having the Green Bank kind of facilitating that due diligence side as well. So clearly, you know, from a state perspective as to which projects need to be done and then coordinating that side, then, you know, helping the marriage between the money and the need. That sounds like what's going to happen. So it, it's works. an interesting because I read somewhere that Senator Markey has proposed a green, quote unquote, green bank. But in that case, or at least I think the proposal would be that the green bank at the federal level is backed up by the the Fed. Right. And they can print money right? so that the investment is absolutely safe. And, and some it's almost it's, you say, once you start thinking of a green bank at the state level where we cannot print money. But if that was backed up by a federal thing that has, you know, the, the, the security of the, the full faith and honor of the U.S. dollar behind it, that's a interesting. Well, that's a great idea, Jeff. I yeah. would be interested to follow that going forward. Um, another piece that. Uh we're looking at is smart metering technology. Um, I think in the last show that I was on with you folks, I talked about uh, a device that I had put into my electrical panel that uh, makes my system a little smarter, um, but I'd like to see that technology actually at the meter, uh, exchanging information bet between the homeowner uh, and sending it back to the utilities so that they can actually see, uh, you know, how the energy has been being used, when it's being used, uh, control when the energy is going out, offer customers rebates uh, if they utilize energy off peak. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, that's something that uh, we have some legislation that uh, has been proposed in the past, but I think uh, moving that forward uh, to require the utilities to put these smart meters in homes, uh, I think is a, is, is a good move. And, uh, you know, we'll certainly pursue it. And, uh, yeah, and just a no. little bit on that before we go further, I think you know, people hear smart meters and uh, government oversight, even private oversight, what's privacy going to happen, going to have, have happened to it in there. And, to a certain extent, yes, there are some privacy concerns, but I think that was one of the things that you started looking at as well. And even from my security perspective, to the extent that electricity, when you come down to it, and certainly I'm not the electrician by any means, I don't have a technical background, but it is a wavelength. So if AI and the technology can interpret wavelengths to define them to a device and thereby start incenting using that device in the off-peak hours versus the peak hours, and then conceive of that on a grander scale, that has to help us. And yeah. I don't think there's enough of a real privacy concern in that case because of the beneficial goods that outweigh that piece, my two cents. Well, I'll, I'll share with you that, uh, you know, using the smart metering technology without a smart meter, there are ways they can do it. Uh, I received a $52 rebate on my electric bill this month because I gave um, National Grid control of my electric vehicle so that they could turn off my charger during the peak periods Ooh. and bring it back on in the off-peak. So that vehicle was being charged off-peak yep. and earned me 50 bucks. Um, while charging <laughs> right that's so that's, that, in other words that's fantastic and it, it is a concrete example as I, I was trying to talk through why the off peak was useful what you're saying is that 
you have actually implemented the option where the utility knows your EV, gorgeous EV, by the way, is demanding demanding power, right? And if if the entire grid is needs too much power and is turning on dirty power plants in order to generate the electricity, then the grid's smart enough to turn your EV off, reduce the demand, and so now you don't have to turn on that coal-powered coal powered power plant someplace in the state, right? And everything's greener. I mean, that's a way to manage the grid. That's yep. a great example of why this uh, technology is useful, right? Because yeah. you can match the demand to the supply in the most green way. Yeah, why it worked with my vehicle is because my vehicle has Wi-Fi settings. So by granting National Grid access to the Wi-Fi in my vehicle, they they knew when I was demanding power. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it was during a peak period, they would actually send me a text and saying, uh, we need the power. We'd like to shut your vehicle off. If you want to override this, text back stop. Otherwise, we'll automatically do it. I never... Uh, it, it didn't matter to me when the vehicle was charging. All I wanted to do was when I woke up in the morning, I wanted it to be charged. Sure. So whether it started charging at five in the afternoon or one in the morning did not matter to me. Um, so I was happy. I never overrode their uh, their piece, and I was delighted to uh, get money back as a mm. result. And uh, so I was saving money, and I was also uh, helping the environment by not – contributing to the demand when I didn't need to. And uh, if we get these smart meters in people's homes, you can do the same with dishwashers, with, uh, you know, clothes dryers, uh, with with any devices that you don't need uh, running uh, during peak periods. And uh, I I think I just signed up for another one with uh, uh, with Eversource uh, on my gas. Uh, I have a Nest thermometer. Okay. Yep. And they said if you give us control over your thermometer so that we can, uh, you know, uh, lower your temperature when there's a high demand, uh, we're going to give you rebates. So, uh, you know, I'm working with them there. Those are particular devices I have in my home. The smart meter would control everything from the exterior of your home. And I'm talking about that meter that hangs off the side of your house. Uh, most of us have dumb meters. If we can put smart meters in, that would give uh, the ability to save on so many devices in our homes. And that that whole thing speaks to the importance of what I what people refer to as the built environment, right? People's homes oh. are the place. In, in homes and buildings in Massachusetts are the place where lots and lots of carbon pollution is generated through heating and whatnot. And there's many, many implications of how do you reduce carbon emissions from homes. And you're on to this particular one of, of managing the demand, which is an interesting thing, but it's a big topic. There's lots of ways to go once you start thinking about how do we reduce demand from the built environment, which is this fancy word for saying everything, every place we live in, right? Yeah, if we can reduce the demand, it goes a long way uh, towards uh, lowering emissions. Like you said, we don't have to activate um, a coal-fired plant. Of course, there are no coal-fired plants left in Massachusetts, but we certainly have uh, natural gas peaker plants and oil-fired peaker plants. And to the extent we're able to keep them off, we're going to uh, lower uh, the emissions. And one way to do that is to decrease the demand. Right. I think uh, related to that, we can segue into our stretch code topic, because I think the stretch code was something we wanted to address here, where the buildings, as they are built going forward, would have the ultimate in kind of the green technology, energy use sense technology. Um, But then the other issue is the built environment. How do we retrofit the existing buildings so that they can then, you know, kind of catch up and stop, you know, digging the hole deeper for us. Um, As I think we've discussed previously, I updated 
my oil burner at one point, and I think it was 2008, the next thing would be a heat pump and or geothermal uh, provided heat pump of some sort. Um, and when that is ready for an installation, then I'll sign up and step along. And I think that's one of the things that's on your radar. And I know there's a pilot underway in regards to a uh, small uh, geo district uh, heat right. thermal heat pump in Framingham, I believe. Yeah, it, it is in Framingham. Eversource is uh, doing that project in Framingham. Uh, National Grid has selected a site. Um, and they are going to be making an announcement uh, within the next week or so about where they're going to be doing their geothermal pilot. Okay. Uh, you know, one thing when I was out in um, when I was out in Denmark, uh, there was constant conversation about district heat, and uh, you know, we as Americans were, "What are you talking about? What is that?" And mm. that's what these network geothermal uh, pieces are, and they're actually um, in the city of Boston. Um, they use steam generated out of uh, uh, out of Cambridge that powers um, most of the hospitals um, through uh, generating steam and moving it through pipes, uh, you know, underneath the Charles River and into the city. And they power all of these buildings so that the individual buildings do not have power plants. They rely on the steam coming from one central location over in Cambridge. And it's the, uh, you know, it's a district heat type uh, concept. I, mm -hmm. I toured that facility uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, and learned about the, the major steps. I mean, this is a plant that's 100 years old. And it started off as coal. And, uh, you know, as they've made advances, um, it's amazing how their technology uh, is uh, operating less and less and less on, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels mm -hmm. and incorporating technologies so that this could become a robust source of energy uh, that works well in a city. I mean, we couldn't be passing steam around uh, you know, suburban communities like Franklin, but it works great in the city. And similarly, I think these geothermal networks for neighborhoods uh, is a great uh, idea. The community solar projects that we see coming up are, are, are great ideas. Uh, and my, obviously, my favorite are the, uh, the wind turbines in the farms uh, off of the coast of Massachusetts. I'll share a funny story. Yesterday I was doing a uh, an offshore wind uh, conference in Boston and uh, the CEO of Orsted uh, had, had got up, gotten up and he spoke before me and he talked about how Massachusetts is so proud that it's going to have the first commercial scale uh, a utility wind farm in the entire United States. And he said, that's not uh, exactly true. He said, Orsted is going to be first uh, off of New York. And uh, so, I, of course, I went to my fact checkers the next day and I said, <laughs> uh, what's, the, what's the deal? They said, well, certainly Massachusetts has broken ground first, and that's the Vineyard Wind Project, but Orsted will open theirs first. But it's only 12 turbines as opposed to our 80 turbines in the Massachusetts project. So I, I said, OK, he was uh, playing fast and loose mm -hmm. with, uh, with reality. Uh, 12 turbines does not, to me, amount to a commercial scale utility uh, wind farm. And uh, so Massachusetts, once again, will be first uh, in this space. And uh, uh, he also said that Orsted does not have a Massachusetts project. And uh, when I got up to give my remarks, I said, uh, uh, Mr. Hardy neglected to use the word yet. Yes. Uh, Massachusetts has authorized already 5,600 uh, uh, megawatts of, uh, of power, and uh, we have 3,200 megawatts under contract today. That still leaves 2,400 megawatts, and I'm sure we will authorize more uh, as the sessions go on. So that leaves room 
with the price cap having been lifted, that Orsted has no excuse uh, not to bid on the next project. And uh, I certainly reminded the audience of, of that uh, uh, when I got up to give my remarks. So let's see if Orsted does become a player in the Massachusetts market. Yeah. And, and we want, I mean, we as the state of Massachusetts wants all those big players, right? There's Orsted, there's, oh, I can't remember the other, they're all European. Equinoa. Yeah, I mean, yeah. go ahead. Um, um, uh, Mayflower is one, Vineyard Wind, uh, CIP. What, what's the company that used to be called DONG, uh, uh, Danish uh, Oil Man? Uh, I don't want to even Dong, uh, they were told if you're going to come to America, you might want to consider changing that name. Change the name, please. Yes, that may not quite well. And Vineyard Wind, uh, they they, uh, definitely are not using. Oh, no, that's Orsted. Orsted used to be Dong. I'm I'm sorry. My point being that Massachusetts, as as an economic enterprise, wants to have the big global wind energy players in our backyard and hopefully headquartered here. And I think some of them have pretty significant offices. And so, again, I think you're, you're right to invite Ersted. If, you know, if they're not already building something here, we want them here because it's all, we want those big companies, I think, right? The headquarters is in Boston, Massachusetts. Right. And I said, you know, it just makes sense that they have a, a farm uh, off of uh, Massachusetts. We've got the lease areas there. Uh, they do have uh, a wind farm in the lease area, but it's going to be servicing uh, either Connecticut or New York, not Massachusetts. But uh, we certainly want them at the table. And uh, when the next round of bids goes out in the spring, uh, be anxious to see if they uh, step up to the plate. Tell me, Jeff, last time you were on, you made reference to having gone to a wind turbine test facility somewhere yes. around Boston. Can you tell me the story about that? I mean, what's uh Sure. Sure, that uh, that's a great facility. It's uh, the Wind uh, Blade Testing Center, and it's in uh, Charlestown. And uh, it's the only facility of its kind in the United States. The only one that's comparable to it is in Germany. And so what they do is they take the blades... You mean yeah. one of the three, one of the three big blades you see on a wind turbine? They have like, exactly. like one of them, right? Yeah. So what they'll do is they will mount them on the wall, and they will undergo a series of stress tests to see just how far they can bend them uh, before they break. Uh, they will subject them to, uh, you know, turbulence. Uh, to see uh, whether they fracture, and they will age them uh, in the course of a couple of months. They will age them out 20 years with this rigorous testing, and they give very valuable feedback uh, to the manufacturers. Now, this facility was built 10 years ago, and the blades that uh, you know were out in the first few years uh, easily fit into this building mm-hmm. the blades are so long that they no longer fit in this building so we are going uh, underway uh, to I'm, I'm, I modify I don't know why I'm uh, lacking for a word but we're expanding that facility to extending it literally <laughs> yeah it's it's an, another 150 feet that that building has to be extended and it's it's somewhat comical when you pull up to the facility, you drive up and you see this blade sticking out the door. They can't even close the door uh, really? while these blades are there, and and they're monsters. They're the size of football fields. Well, and, I think that's a fascinating thing because it be, uh, they're subjecting these blades to stress tests, torture tests, basically. In, in, I, I'm sure it's much more sophisticated, but I'm it's probably something like hanging a you know a thousand pound weight off the tip of the blade to see if the blade is rigid, structurally strong enough to hold that weight out right and they they probably shake it and do all kinds of put vibrations on it to to try to break it right because it's much happier to break the thing in charlestown than it is out on the atlantic ocean so this is this is this is a great thing and it's high tech a lot of scientific stuff in his jobs. I mean, I think it's and very, it's, very and it's unique. It's the only one of its kind. 
in the in the United States, and it's right here in Massachusetts. Uh, and the day that I was touring the facility was the day that the Museum of Science happened to be filming at the uh, center, and uh, they'll be doing a whole video series on uh, offshore wind and the testing facility. Um, I, I re- bumped into the folks last week, and they said the, the clips are almost done, and they'll be sending them out to us uh, for our approval because they had us uh, speak. And uh, actually, I was there. Uh, my gift for uh, going to the facility is I got a uh, a portion of a blade that they had cut out. It's like a two-inch section of the blade, and it's uh, a monstrous piece. It's probably about five or six feet wide, uh, and that will be some artwork in my statehouse office gotcha. when I get around to hanging it up. It's it's actually pretty unique looking at the structure of a, of a wind uh, turbine blade and seeing, you know, the materials that make it up. And these things have to last 20 years. Mm. Uh, so yeah. they, they, they do need to go through this rigorous testing. But I do urge you, uh, if you get a chance, uh, I know I'll be putting them out on my social media, but the Museum of Science will, will be putting them out on their website and social media uh, as a way to explain what's going on in the offshore wind industry in Massachusetts. That's great. That's great. I think having those little souvenirs, those little pieces of hardware. I remember my my brother having a chip, a computer chip, right, on a on what? a business card, like in the early 1990s, and that was a that was a real deal. You've got something from the very beginning. I mean, I just I don't want to geek out too far, but I mean, if you look, if you take a minute, look at the blades. They're very carefully sculpted, right? This is they have a really kind of funny shape, and what they in order to generate a force on that blade that wants to push it down and rotate it, right? So there's so much modeling that goes into it. And then the thing has to be light enough and strong enough at the same time. So the materials engineering that goes into making literally a 300 foot long blade, right? That's self-supporting and can take all that stress uh, I mean, there's lots of lots of interesting work to be done there. Yeah, and imagine uh, installing those size blades onto a turbine out in the middle of the ocean, bouncing up and down on a boat, bouncing with uh, the tides. Rain. It's it's uh, it's an amazing uh, amazing uh, piece, and uh, I'm just so looking forward to seeing uh, the job creation and the continued involvement uh, with this industry. It's, uh, it's really poised to grow. If you want to see what um, an industry like this can do for a community, um, 60 Minutes, about a month or two ago, did a whole uh, segment on Grimsby in England, uh, which was a dying fishing village in England. And with the offshore wind industry, it has absolutely transformed the community and transformed the lives of the people who live there and brought the whole community back to life. And that's the potential uh, of offshore wind. And think of a community like New Bedford. And I may have said this in the past with you folks, but it bears repeating. A hundred years ago, um, the city of New Bedford was known for um, lighting the world using whale oil. And, uh, you know, obviously we don't use whale oil anymore to light things. Um, and the city has not, you know, done well, but offshore wind has the potential to uh, bring New Bedford back as a way to light the world through offshore wind. And I'm excited for what that uh, community is going to reap uh, from an industry like this. Jeff, I got to throw one more poetic uh, uh, image at you. So I grew up in New Bedford, and in front of the New Bedford Library is a picture of a a whaler guy with a harpoon in a boat, and the and it's the the marquee is a dead whale or a stove boat, right? Without going into the environmental incredible environmental injustice of killing all the whales, right? The, the sort of bravery of that guy is 
likened to the bravery of the guy who's going to go out on a floating platform 500 feet in the air installing a wind turbine. And you can go to Gloucester. There's the stalwart fishermen of Gloucester, right? These are like real stories about real people with real jobs. And I mean, that's where we're headed again under the kinds of things that you're thinking about. So again, I think it's it those sort of, you know, real human images about what is happening are exciting and people need to be aware of them. And incidentally, I have had the opportunity to climb the 500 feet to the top of a nacelle and walk around on the platform on that nacelle and make some repairs to the engine in that nacelle. And that was all uh, due to the availability of virtual reality equipment that allowed me to... um, do that very dangerous work from the floor of a conference room in a building. Hmm. And uh, that that uh, virtual reality technology was designed and de- developed by an innovator in Massachusetts and uh, with a grant from the Mass Clean Energy Center. It's, it's a great teaching tool for um, young people who may want to say, hey, is this a career for me? Let me examine it doing virtual reality and see uh, if this is something I'm interested in doing without exposing them to the dangers of climbing 500 feet up a, uh, up a turbine and falling into the ocean or, you know, dropping something. Uh, it's amazing what we can do today that we couldn't do 100 years ago. And, and just to... to- I mean, I think it's very interesting and a point to be made about the available jobs is that there are jobs installing wind turbines, but there are there are a whole the great thing about the economic opportunity is there's a whole industry of secondary companies that are formed to support the main industry. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of is there are companies that specialize in managing, installing and managing the data communication among your 100 wind turbines, right? Because they're all talking to each other over Wi-Fi and whatnot. And somebody's got to manage that. And so you may not be, the the economic benefit to Massachusetts of having this cluster of companies around the, uh, uh, the majors is, it's like Detroit, right? You may not work for GM, but there's like a thousand companies supporting GM in Detroit. And that's the beauty of this thing. So, Well, I, I'll remind you of the factory that's going to be built in Somerset at Brayton Point that's going to provide the cables for the turbines uh, along the east coast of the United States. Another, um, you know, uh, company that's out there, Franklin Sheet Metal. And our own Franklin, Massachusetts, is going to be doing some of the steel work for Vineyard Wind. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I went in there for a tour just to talk to the owners, and uh, they were excited to tell me that they were going to be one of the players in the offshore wind. And here it is, right on Cottage Street in Franklin, Massachusetts, part of that ecosystem uh, that's underway. Uh, it's fascinating. It's exciting. And uh, I, I love what it has to offer in the course of providing robust, clean energy that we so badly need as we transition away from fossil fuels. Some have suggested that uh, the work uh, that I'm engaged in and the work that I'm doing in this space is advancing too quickly and too costly. And um obviously those folks are not reading uh, the reports that are coming out of uh, the United Nations and uh, the climate conferences that we put on uh, that we're running out of time to save the planet. Uh, that's my first point. My second point is I don't think setting a goal of achieving net zero by 2050 is quick. That's 28 years. Okay, that's a long time. And some would say that that's not quick enough. Um, But that's the goal we have in place. So um, if you hear somebody arguing that we're moving too quickly, ask them to read the reports, uh, listen to your podcasts, all 19 of them. Mm -hmm. I'm sure two more moving forward. 
and grasp and get an understanding of what we're trying to do here and what we're trying to do to save this planet for our children and our grandchildren. I'm going to be 89 years old in 2050. Um, whether it's too hot for me to go outside is probably going to be the least of my concerns at age 89. But my kids and my grandkids, they have much more at stake. And uh, I don't want to turn over a planet to them that's uh, any less uh, habitable than what I have. Yeah, and uh, the other avenue, to your point, I would add is, okay, when do we start if we don't start today? Because we're digging ourselves a deeper, deeper hole every day we go forward. So let's just cut it and start and do. And yeah, it may be expensive, but what is the alternative? It's going to be that much more expensive down the road. And I think it's heartening to the extent that, you know, having been one associated and liking and reading around the sailing history between Gloucester and the Bedford and having grown up in Rhode Island and Rhode Island as well. You know, when you went before the mast, you effectively put your hand in the hands of the captain and you were gone for a couple of years, et cetera, to find out whether you liked it or not. And then you could then, once you got back, assuming you got back, um, then re-up and maybe yep. move up up before the mast. Yep. Here, to the extent that there is now via the virtual reality and other training opportunities, you've got a much safer alternative to find any number of either physical labor jobs or electrician, carpenter, any number of other technical jobs that are going to be required for this uh, industry to help us make the change. Watch that 60 Minutes piece and you'll see a young woman um, who has taken on the task of climbing up these turbines and repairing them. And, uh, you know, it's dangerous work, but she absolutely loves it. And you can see the passion uh, in the way she describes uh, the job that she does on a daily basis. And you see her in action and you're just so excited for her. And it's just a tremendous opportunity and a, a, a real nice rebuilding of uh, Grimsby. The only thing I ever knew about Grimsby, it was an Elton John song from the Caribou album. Uh, <laughs> uh, but now I have a, a, a much better understanding of what's going on in that lovely little town. We'll add that link to the show notes. <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> you need that full spectrum of the experience. <laughs> Well, let's go back. We did take a little bit of a segue. So we started talking about the building retrofits and the stretch yeah. code. And then, of course, we took a valid deviation. And now we're back here again. So we get an opportunity. So the stretch code, and I believe MCAN was doing a public hearing that coincidentally was earlier this morning um, yeah. to gather some additional uh, information, et cetera, around what could be changed to the proposal that is out there by uh, DOER, I think. Yeah, so that that uh, it's an opt-in stretch code uh, to begin with. It's a specialized stretch code that um, we had uh, required as part of the roadmap bill in 2021, and we directed the uh, administration to develop an opt-in opt-in stretch code that could allow cities or towns to take steps to uh, really ramp up their efforts to be net zero. We asked the administration to divine a net zero building. And uh, I know that there was some aim or some had uh, wanted the stretch code to uh, allow communities to ban fossil fuels. Uh, the administration did not go that far. Um, and we knew that the administration was not going to go that far. So that's why in the 2022 bill, uh, we developed our own pilot program to allow up to 10 communities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to ban uh, fossil fuels if they saw fit. And uh, we hope to gather valuable data uh, from that experiment with those 10 communities as to whether or not uh, that's a, a direction we ought to go in. And, Jeff, uh, I could just jump in for one second. I mean, there's a net... So there's a bunch of words there to unpack. There's net zero building code. And net zero usually refers to a building that uh, uh, emits no carbon dioxide. Exactly. Generally speaking, so and the net zero comes from 
you can imagine a circumstance where a building you generate some carbon dioxide, but then buys renewable energy credits to net out to be net zero. Yep. A lot yep. of the building code uses carbon intent, capture. Right, right, something like that. But then the, the the it sort of boiled down to the idea that a net zero residential building should be electric only, operating on heat pumps. That is to say, you only have electricity in your house. You have an induction oven. You have a electric um, clothes dryer, electric water, hot water heater, a heat pump. And that allows you to be like, really, when you say ban fossil fuels, it means that in new construction, you ban, you don't allow new gas hookups. Right. Exactly. Just to, right. So, and yeah. that was the, I, again, I completely support this idea that we have 10 towns. Let's do the experiment, collect the data and see where we stand. So give it back to you, Jeff. So I just wanted yep. to jump in and say that. No, I, I'm glad you did, because I, I use these terms every single day, and I forget that a lot of people are saying, uh, what language is he speaking? Uh, on top of all of that work, uh, there's a Clean Heat Commission that is uh, studying all of these issues, and that group is slated to uh, release its report this month it's november of 2022 so we'll be looking at another series of recommendations about what we can do uh for uh, retrofitting buildings uh you know new construction and uh, i truly am awaiting that report i almost wish that report had come out before the uh, specialized stretch energy code uh, because i think there's going to be some valuable information uh, that's going to come out in that report. And, you know, these two vehicles are going to be great jumping off points for the new administration, which is going to be sworn in in January. We have a new governor, a new lieutenant governor. We'll have a new um, secretary of uh, energy and environmental affairs. We'll have a new commissioner of uh, the Department of Energy Resources. We'll have a new chairman of the Department of Public Utilities. So there's a lot of change uh, about to take place as a new administration is seated. And that means significant things for things like the opt-in stretch energy code and uh, the Clean Heat Commission. So uh, and, I'm and anxious. Those, those are, as you say, those are two vehicles vehicles in the sense of two mechanisms for reducing carbon emissions. The, the specialized code would be from new buildings and the clean heat commission plan would be finding ways to reduce carbon emissions from existing buildings. And those yep. two in tandem cover the waterfront for buildings, which again is a place uh, that we need to be going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing weather events. We're seeing, uh, warming waters, rising waters, uh, all of this stuff needs to be uh, taken into account uh, as we are building buildings around them. Uh, you know, we don't want Franklin to become a coastal community, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know. I mean, I, I, I live realities. here in Franklin next to a school, so I see kids going back and forth every day as they, uh, you know, go in and out of the school. The other day, it was 75 degrees in November, mm -hmm. right? and, a, and a kid in fourth grade has no idea that that is just not normal, right? yeah. and it's our job to do something about it so it doesn't persist. I mean, it's just, it's, as, as, as you say, things happening. Yeah, right here in Franklin, it was, it was moist in 75, closing in on Thanksgiving, right? My pilgrim hat was hot and sweaty. <laughs> Yeah. And yesterday I was walking, uh, uh, my conference was in the seaport and I was l walking along the ocean and I was grateful that I had taken my winter coat. Whereas I was in a t-shirt two days earlier, I was bundled up in my winter coat as I was walking uh, along uh, the seaport boulevard. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Yes. Yeah, the the waterfront there. Having spent many lunch hours and post post evenings while I was working, the waterfront there can be rather brutal at times. <laughs> yes, it can. And coming back to the stretch codes in Franklin, I do recall, and I think you may have not been on the council at that time, having moved on, but the council did approve the prior stretch code for our building codes. And I'm assuming at some point in time, once this 
new code becomes available, it'll be an option for the council to uh, approve having gone through the usual channels. I'm sure Economic Development Committee, Planning Board will weigh in um, before they'll come to take a vote next year, yeah. the year after, whenever. But that'll be something from a Franklin perspective we can watch for Absolutely. to see what happens with it. That's uh, that's certainly on the horizon. Sometime TBD. Yep. Um, one of the things I had shared previously, you had a spot, I think it was with Channel 5 and Ben. Ben has your back. Ben has your back on yeah. some mass save pieces. And I know you're still working on that. So you might want to provide an update for people who may not have heard that yet. And we'll, we'll yeah. include the link so they can go back and you can you can get we can give you the fresh update opportunity here. Yeah. So um Mass Save had reached out. I mean, I'm sorry, Ben Simino from Channel 5 had reached out to me. He had received a number of complaints from people around the Commonwealth uh, who were complaining that uh, there were delays in processing uh, their rebates on uh, retrofitting in their homes. You know, people had installed heat pumps and, uh, you know, other high efficiency uh, devices in their homes. And Part of the promise is if you do these types of retrofits to your house, the Commonwealth will uh, help pay for that through the Mass Save program. And I don't know how many people are aware of it, but if you look at your electric bill, you'll see that uh, any number of dollars comes out of that bill on a monthly basis and goes into this fund uh, that uh, finances all of these rebates for projects that we are encouraging you to do uh, to get your uh, home ready uh, for the the transition, and uh, uh, it, the the program underwent some major changes uh, at the beginning of this year in January, as new programs were rolled out and higher incentives were offered, and that led to some hiccups along the way and delays in processing the the rebates, and people were calling over to mass save and they were referring them to the utilities and the utilities were pointing their fingers back to mass save and these poor people were frustrated and not getting anything so uh, ben simino got involved and then he reached out to me as the chair of telecommunications utilities and energy and uh, i went on to his show and uh, and said look at we understand there are some bumps in the road but six to eight weeks is uh, is a reasonable time to process a rebate, anything uh, beyond that is unreasonable. And uh, if the folks at Mass Save are not going to fix it, uh, the legislature would be happy to jump in and provide a legislative fix. And uh, I'm happy to report at the end of that show, both of the customers uh, who were on there uh, had gotten their rebates uh, rather quickly um, due to the intervention of Channel Five. And I've had constituents reach out to me. Uh, over the course of the last year with the same problem. And, uh, you know, I'm able to get through to the utilities and say, hey, you know, you got to help these people out. But that's not the way it should work. You shouldn't have to call your state representative or your state senator. The system should just work. And if it's not working, have a way that uh, uh, cons- uh, constituents can contact MassSave or the utilities. Hire an om- ombudsman who can address these concerns and complaints and get this stuff taken care of. There's, there's no reason uh, we need to develop confidence in the Mass Save program, and we have to inspire people to participate in this so they retrofit uh, their homes so that we can have a cleaner built environment, and that's our goal. And if you frustrate them by presenting roadblocks, you're not going to get the work done. Uh, you know, I've said that with my electric vehicle. Um, if we don't bolster the infrastructure with charging stations along the Mass Pike uh, in every community across the Commonwealth, and we subject our drivers to range anxiety because they don't know where they can get a charge and how far their vehicle will go, we're not going to transition to electric vehicles. We have to make it as easy as it is to get gasoline in your tank. It should be that easy to get an electric charge in your vehicle. And uh, that's why in our latest bill that we did in 2022, we're spending $50 million to upgrade 
the charging infrastructure across the Commonwealth, and the federal government is throwing in additional millions of dollars to enable us to upgrade the charging infrastructure along all of the interstate highways uh, in the nation. So uh, great efforts uh, to do this, but it's important that we do this so that we uh, encourage and incentivize people to move in this direction. Well said. Putting in charging stations, I, I can tell you, my son tried to rent a car, and by happy circumstance, he was given a Tesla. So he and his uh, fiance decided that we're headed off to Albany or someplace, driving down the Mass Pike, no idea where they could get a charge. You know, they ended up in New Hampshire somewhere to try and find a charging station because that's what the. They went to New Hampshire on their way to Albany? Well, they had to find a, uh, a charging station. So, I mean, I think the thing you're talking about, putting charging stations in as being a critical element is really uh, a good thing to do. But I, I guess I wanted to go back to the mass save issue and sort of raise a, rela- a related question that uh, uh, you're aware of. But, I mean, the, there was an article in The Globe recently that the town of Wellesley wanted to put in, so now we, we wrap around to all the same terms, they were putting in a net zero building powered entirely by heat pumps and whatnot. They did not need any gas lines. But then Mass Save came to them and said that they would go and give to the town of Wellesley another million and a half dollars if they would just install this cute little gas pipeline up to the school, up to the school. Uh, and that, of course, a million and a half dollars focuses the mind, right? So all the people planning it said, should we take this? Should we just put in a pipe, you know, blah, 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 back and forth. And it wasn't until the Globe sort of sent an email to Mass Save saying, can you please explain what this, what this request is for, how it's justified? And then suddenly the problem was solved. The, the, the offer was retracted. The implication being that Mass Save is a creature of the utilities. And since the utilities want to install pipelines in order to preserve their business model, they're willing to use Mass Save in this kind of underhanded way. Maybe I'm being overly, overly negative about the whole story. You can correct me. But I mean, how is it? How can we make Mass Save, which is an organization mandated by the state, but run by the utilities, uh, keep it well aligned with the major roadmap uh, goals of carbon reduction. We, we Does do that make sense, Jeff? Putting, I mean, yeah. I hope I didn't bias no, no, the no. story too much. <laughs> you know, it. Uh, let me say the Mass Save program that we have here in Massachusetts uh, is one of the model programs throughout the nation. It really offers uh, great incentives. I, I've, I've talked to people from New Hampshire saying, we have nothing like that in uh, the state of New Hampshire. There's no incentives like what you have in Massachusetts to do all these, uh, all these uh, retrofits and programs. So let me give them a pat on the back for having a great program. There are bumps along the way. And uh, luckily enough, we have some very bright people who know how to make noise in Massachusetts, and uh, you know, keeps it on the uh, on the straight course. Uh, there, there was no reason for them to insist on a on a gas pipe uh, in a school in Wellesley. Wellesley uh, can handle a building uh, with just heat pumps, and uh, you know that realization set in. And you know, media had to get involved. Uh, not optimal again. But that's, uh, you know, that's part of the checks and balances that we have in our system. Uh, the media uh, is the fourth estate, uh, the fourth branch of government, uh, some would suggest. So, you know, that helps us, uh, you know, get along our way. But I do expect and anticipate that we'll see legislation uh, looking to make some changes in the way Mass Save is run in light of uh the story that appeared in the globe in light of what the story that uh, uh, appeared uh, on uh, channel five. Uh, And so we'll be taking a look at those types of uh, pieces of legislation to see if we do indeed uh, need to make some changes. I have the confidence that they see all of this on the news, just like we do, and they're going to tighten their belts and they're going to right the ship. uh, And we may not have to do anything, but it's good 
that you have a legislature that's uh, staying awake and well aware of these problems and is ready to jump in if we have to. That sounds good. And I think tying back to your original comments in terms of, and I think we even covered it last time where you're anticipating probably another legislative bill each year with a new governor coming in, it might make that process a little bit easier, a little less agita inducing perhaps. Um, <laughs> anything you want to indicate in that? <laughs> quite a phrase. <laughs> hey, you've been reading some headlines about Governor Baker and his agita. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, Maura Healy has a better diet and she won't have those issues as she goes in. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to working with her. I've had the opportunity to work very closely with uh, Maura Healy as the attorney general. They play a major role in what happens in the energy space in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So I'm on speed dial with with her office already and uh, anxious to see her now in the driver's seat in the corner office and uh, anticipating a, a very good uh, continued working relationship. But, you know, it all remains to be seen. You know, she's go she's got to set um, her benchmark for how she's going to lead. And that remains to be seen. Uh, but I'm encouraged uh, by my past history with her and think that uh, we'll be able to accomplish some really good things uh, together because God knows our environment needs the work, and uh, we have committed people on all sides of the spectrum in our uh, state government, and um, ready to see how she uh, she pitches it to us. And uh, the, the thing I'm really anxious about and looking forward to seeing is who she puts on her team. Yeah. Who's her going to be her Secretary of uh, Environmental and Edu Energy Affairs? Who's going to be the the DPU commissioner, who's going to be the commissioner of DOER. Uh, she uh, has also indicated that she's going to put a climate czar in her cabinet, elevate mm. a, a position who will make the secretariats talk to one another and consider environmental issues uh, in, in everything they do. You know, Department of Transportation ought to be thinking of climate change issues and having this uh, interface on the cabinet to make sure that they are and coordinating with uh, EEA and DOT and uh, any of the other agencies, economic development, housing, they all have a role to play uh, in uh, climate change. And I, I think that's the thing that's most exciting for me, seeing that she has put a climate czar as a, a goal for her in her cabinet. And I'm anxious to see who this new team is going to be, because obviously I'll be working very closely with them. And with the election, as we talked of, clearly we've got four major roles, all female, all women-led now in Massachusetts. We'll see what the rest of the team fills out in as they go forward with her, uh, you know, as she fills out her team, to your point. But in the meantime, we thank you for spending time today with Ted and I helping me make sense of climate. So I'm a little bit more educated. And I hope the listeners are a little bit more understanding of clearly the work involved, the challenges that are ahead of us, and yet the willingness to do the work that's necessary. And we appreciate that on your behalf. Yeah, I, I will say, as I've said continuously, uh, this opportunity to represent our communities in the uh, House of Representatives is the greatest opportunity I've ever had in my life. I thoroughly enjoy the work. Uh, I give my heart and soul to it. And uh, I don't care what the task is that's uh, put in front of me. I, I put all into it. And uh, I'm encouraged to have folks like uh, Ted McIntyre, who's a well-recognized uh, climate uh, scientist in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as a constituent that uh, I can pick up the phone and ask him questions. I shoot him an email uh, and he can answer it. So it's uh, it's exciting to uh, be here and uh, doing this work. So I thank you for calling attention to it. It's, the, it's one of the major challenges in front of us. So we will get there yep. however we can. Yep. Thank you again. Thanks, Ted, for helping us. And again, My 19. Pleasure. Uh, 19, even in the 
cribbage world. It's an impossible number, but guess what? We did it. <laughs> Who's your guest on number 20? Oh, uh, we um, got to figure that out. We've got a be bottle of champagne, I think. Yeah. Got a host of opportunities. Yep. So we'll figure that out. For the listeners, thank you for joining us. Come back. There'll be more. And one other quick reminder. We do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.